Thank you, Devin. I was uh, reading some things uh, this past week that kind of struck my attention, and uh, one of it was an article by the, uh, I don't know if he's self-proclaimed, though sometimes he, he does speak rather boldly about himself, but I know uh, many in the, the world of academia uh, consider him the smartest man in the world, uh, kind of the Einstein of our day, Stephen Hawking. And um, Stephen Hawking, uh, through a variety of reasons, is now confined to a wheelchair. And in many ways, the only thing that he really can do is think. And so he thinks a lot. Not only can he think, however, he can write and he can speak. Uh, and, and, I, and I read this as an introduction to sometimes when people read the Bible, particularly the parts we're reading. And we've just finished a series in the book of Daniel. And for those who have struggled the last few chapters, which has been very kind of... Um, difficult to, to uh, dissect. Uh, it had a lot of historical perspectives on it. Uh, and we're starting a new series in the book of Acts. And, and let me just give a commercial for the tool we give you each week. Uh, we call it a PT with God, personal time with God. Uh, some, sometimes people's uh, time with God is, is found in a, a devotional. And I think devotionals are great. But usually what happens is someone kind of digest something for you and puts a verse there and then you have a thought for the day. And what we've tried to do in the personal time with God is get you to the primary source, which is the Word of God. And, and sometimes with people who have a, a process of getting in the Word of God, they've made the first good step, which is they read the Word of God. But if you're like me, sometimes my, my mind wanders. You never do that when I'm preaching, but I mean, does your mind ever wander? Okay. <laughs> Well, sometimes when we read the Bible, our minds wander, and we go, what did I just read? And so the way to keep your mind from wandering when you read the Bible is to ask questions of what you just read. And just to kind of help you out with that, we, what we have is we give you a section to read, we give you questions to answer, uh, and it's not going to take you a long period of time, but it will cause you to read the Word of God, think about what you've read, make some observations, some conclusions, some interpretations, and some applications. And let me tell you, whether you go to Bible school or seminary, that's what we do. We read the Bible, ask questions of it, try to find out what it means, and then how does it apply. And so this is the habit of, of getting something out of the God's Word rather than just you know, press flowers or whatever you know, that book does. Okay? So I encourage you, this is one way uh, to get into the primary source to get something out of it. There's nothing wrong. I read devotionals as well, so those who read devotionals, this is not a slam of devotionals. But this is a way to get into the text in a primary way. So did, I, did I persuade any of you to say, hey, I'm going to start a new series book, Acts. It's going to be a great um, opportunity to, to find out what God did in the ch first church and uh, encourage you to, to do that. However, sometimes when people read some difficult sections in the Word of God, and some are... some. The, if I'm not careful, I'm going to give you a sermon before I get to the sermon. And I already have a long sermon, but I feel led of God to do this, so I'll go ahead and do this. Now, let, me just, let me just say this too. As you read the Word of God, some of it, it's just an amazing book because God wrote it. He used men to write it, but God wrote it. And it's, it's one of those books that a child can understand it. If you, if you read God's Word, even as a, as a little guy, and I had the privilege to read the Bible as a little guy, and I'm not a brainiac. I don't consider myself a person with a high IQ. But when I was a child, I understood much of what I read. And now as an adult, uh, I find that even though I've read it many, many, many times, I'm always learning new things from it. 
But I have to admit that there are certain sections that are a little bit more difficult than others. Okay? And sometimes when we get to those sections, we just want to throw up our hands or just you know, sit back in the chair and say, I just give up. And, and then some who might come to the Bible as critics might say, you know, this is a little bit too weird. This is a little bit too out there. How can, how can I really believe this stuff? I mean, it's just it's too unimaginable. It's too complicated. But let me, let me read to you what the smartest man in the world is looking to in the future. And basically, as I take the book of Revelation, it, it's... In, it's much in the future, uh, but here is what the smartest man in the, bi- in the world now believes. And I don't know, well, I think I could believe the Bible a little bit more than this. But anyway, Stephen Hawking has long been known as the go-to mind in the science community for future predictions. It was Hawking who s- stated that he fears contact with extraterrestrial life. You remember the movie E.T.? Okay, E.T., but a little bit more kind of a, a, a Will Smith-type, Armageddon-type of movie, all right? Uh, warning, that the, that a, uh, warning us that alien life might try to conquer and colonize the Earth. He goes on to cite examples throughout history that prove his theory, saying, if aliens visit us, the outcome would be much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. Hawking has said in a forthcoming documentary made for the Discovery Channel, so if you don't read about it, you can see it on TV, he argues that instead of trying to find and communicate with life in the cosmos, the cosmos, which way, I don't think which way you say that, but um, humans would be better off doing everything they can to avoid contact. So you can take Stephen Hawking's view of the future, that there are aliens out there, and we ought to pull back, and we do have scientists trying to get messages out there and re- receive them. See the movie First Contact? You think all I do is watch movies. All right, well, anyway, <laughs> don't look like you've never watched any of these movies. All right, some of these, you know, the alien-type battles, okay, is you say we shouldn't be trying to communicate to them because what's going to happen when they do come, like a lot of the movies, they're going to try to destroy us. That's what Hawking, Stephen Hawking sees about the future. Well, I'd rather turn to this book and see what God says about the future. And really what God says about the future is what he has said about the past and the present, that that there's a plan, that we are not spiraling into space all by our own in some uh, miraculous evolutionary uh, accident of nature that we're here, but that there's a plan. And, And And for there to be a plan, there has to be a planner. And that planner is God. And what we see in Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, and that's always a good place to what? Begin, right? Then we go to the book of Revelation, which is the unveiling of what's going to happen in the future. And just to catch up, uh, us up to speed, what starts in this book, he says, okay, let me tell you about something in the past. And he reveals who Jesus is. And then he talks about the present, as John wrote this book, and talked about the churches in Asia Minor. Not in the Middle East, but in Asia Minor. Because this is, I, I really believe this is a book that speaks to the globe, to the world, not just to a particular narrow part of, of, of territory in Israel. And he, and he speaks to these churches that were representative of churches then and now. And says, okay, here's, here's the, the present information for you to, to understand my plan for you. And some things you ought to watch out for. Some things you ought to do. And some things you should not do. And that's an example for us as well. 
And if you want to remember, the, the, I guess the simplest message is, as God calls people to himself, what he's most concerned about is our heart. You know, we, we can be involved in all kinds of activity that, that look impressive in a religious way, but he, he, wants to, he wants our heart to be right with him. And he says, I, 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 I just am brokenhearted that you've, you've left your first love. And he says some other direct messages to those churches that are true for us as well. And then he says, okay, now I want you to have a, a look into the future. And Jesus did that for the disciples in what's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels. And he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to be taken off, but I want you to know when I take off, the plan is still going to continue. And in the meantime, this is what you ought to be all about. Now, they were very curious about the details like we are, and God gives us some details. But in the midst of the things not unfolding yet, he wants us to realize our, our role is to simply live for him and get the message out. And you're going to see this in the book of Acts this week as we begin the study in the book of Acts. They ask, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No, he didn't say the kingdom to the church. He said the kingdom to Israel. These were Jewish people saying it. That was the context in which they saw it. And he said, it's not for you to know the times, the epics for, for when this is going to all play out. But here is the message. You're going to receive power. <laughs> Do we all like power? You know, and even more power, the, the power to, to live for me and to, to be my representatives, to be my witnesses. Not only here in Jerusalem, but next door in Samaria. And then even really to every part of this world. So the church explodes into the scene. They uh, sometimes slow down too much for God's you know, uh, plan. And so he kind of pushes them out and then he began to go everywhere. And, and when John writes the book of Revelation, as I'm convinced, is that really all of his friends, all of his close companions, the other 11, have, have now died. And he's left alone in this little island of Patmos. And he's trying to put all these pieces together. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a look into the future. And so beginning in chapter 4, uh, he, he, he catches them up to heaven, whether in a vision or, or how, he, how that experience was, we're not really clear. But he was caught up into heaven. And he really was caught up into heaven to see what was going to happen. And he, and he saw heaven as it was right before God unleashes the final parts of his plan. And in heaven, what we need to realize, the heaven, and it'll be expressed in so many, a variety of ways. But in heaven, worship happens, which is finding value in God and all that God does and all that God makes. But he'll be the focal point. And they proclaim God, particularly in chapter 4, about him being the creator of all things. And then in chapter 5, he being the redeemer of all things. But as we think about God, God, you know, we don't want to reduce God just to a few attributes or characteristics. He is, he is everything um, to the best degree. Throw out another one. He is a true divergent. All right? he, he has everything, right? And, and now they're going to see God coming as judge. So after a couple chapters in heaven, now, now they're thrown down into this earth and Right before that happens, John is struggling, seeing this, experiencing this. And again, this is kind of heady stuff. 
but Stephen Hawking thinks that aliens are out there. They're going to come here and destroy us, and we ought to quit communi trying to communicate him because when they come, it's going to be this huge battle. So, so pick your, your crazy ideas. Do you, you believe in Stephen Hawking or, or, or God's track record that has been displayed throughout all of history? The footprints in the, hand, in the sand are pretty deep knowing this is true. And so he gives this message to, to John, and all of a sudden, to begin, there has to be this book that's open. And this book is probably, if you want to use it in a symbolic way, and let me just tell you about symbols in, in all of the Bible, but particularly symbols as it relates to uh, the book of Revelation. A symbol is a symbol of a fact. We can't just take these symbols any way we want. They do point back to something. And also, I think when you read the Bible, you want to read the Bible like you would read most literature. When you can take it just literally at face value, that's how you take it. But when the language becomes symbolic, then you try to say, well, what does that symbol point to? And, and so much of what I believe it, it's recorded for us in Revelation is descriptions of things that will happen on this planet. So when the Bible uses the word earthquake, we see it as a what? Earthquake. Now, when he says that it's like a mountain falling from the sky then we don't think there's a mountain in the sky. It's something like a mountain that's huge that, that comes down here on this earth. And so uh, as, we, as we get into this unleashing of the plan of God, uh, there's this book and no one could open it. No one's worthy to open up the next part of God's plan except, except Jesus. And so he breaks the seals. Now, when I first read the, uh, the, the book of Revelation, I was rather young at that time, and I've, I was looking at the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the, and the bowl judgments. And at first I thought, does that mean God's going to hit people with a trumpet and hit people with a bowl and a seal? I've seen seals in the ocean. They're kind of dark skin and they have these. No, no, that's, these, are, these are just word pictures of how God is unleashing what he's going to do. And the, and the seal judgments are descriptive of what he's opening up in this book that records what is to happen. And as we see, time permitting, the trumpets that, that, that are blown, it's like an alarm that goes off. We've all been in school, and when we have the fire drill, what goes off? An alarm. And it's saying something is happening or could happen, and then we need to be prepared for it. And, and so it's called the trumpet judgment. And then the bowl judgment is simply God pouring out the, latter part, the last part of his wrath on God, on this earth. And so the seal judgments are broken, and in chapter 6 are described the things that, that happen that now are, are like the birth pains. They start fairly slow, and again, I, you know, I, I've never given birth, um, but I've watched births happen. And when the contractions start, they start slow, and then they build up an in intensity, don't they? And that's what happens here. And what happens is there's a false peace, and then... That false peace is the consequences of that which is false. Instead of peace, they're then wars. And then the consequences of wars, there's famine everywhere. And the result of wars and famine, there's death. Death like no other time in the history of this, this world. One-fourth of the population dies. And that's not even the end of this period of time. And, and, and then in the midst of that, another seal is broken. And then the heart of those who have been martyred for the faith, there, there's vengeance that's desired. 
But it's not their vengeance. It's the vengeance of the Lord that will be unleashed. And I think that brings it up. If you, if you look at the book of Revelation as a seven-year period of time in terms between chapter 6 and chapters 19, uh, this is about halfway through here. And, and then the seal judgment is that which begins at the midpoint of this period of time and continues on. But in the midst of these sealed judgments, uh, more detail is given with the other judgments. And out of the sealed judgments come the trumpet judgments. And they give more detail what happens in the midst of all that is described as, as the day of the Lord happens, where, where God's day is now here on this planet. And in the very end, the bold judgments picture in rapid fire succession uh, the things that will happen in, that, in those last days before Jesus returns. Last week, we, we looked at a deep breath, yeah, kind of a, a pause, a, uh, you know, this, uh, this is too much to, to, to wrap my mind around. And God says, okay, in the midst of judgment that's happening, I want you to know that I'm coming to save. I'm coming to deliver those who will turn to me. And, and so he causes those four angels to hold back the judgments of God. And in the midst of holding back the judgments of God, it says that God reaches down and he touches 144,000, 12,000 per tribe, Jewish followers of Jesus, and seals them to be his representatives throughout this period of time. So they'll, they'll be the Billy Grahams or the Apostle Pauls getting the message out. And, and as we looked at just briefly, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, it says not only does he have these ambassadors for Christ that are, are going to be so bold, it's unleashing uh, people that they're just it can't be stopped to share the message of Christ. It won't be just them because those who, whom they draw into faith will do the same thing, but there will be an angel preaching the everlasting message of the kingdom of God throughout this planet. So there will be a period of time where that question is, well, what about the people who have never heard? And during this period of time, that cannot be said because every single person will be heard. And, and we'll know in the midst of that, the results of that is, is God has said, look, from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, there will be a multitude of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So many of you can't even count. So in the midst of judgment, and the judgment will be immense during this period of time, God is still healer. He's still Savior. I think it's in Ezekiel chapter 18 where it says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So in the midst of God's judgment, God is gracious. Well, after the pause, <laughs> the action begins again. In Revelation chapter 8, and uh, now it just depends how fast I talk and how much detail I give, we'll, we'll, we'll see what comes next. So if you have your Bibles, turn to that section of God's Word and, and we'll see. In fact, what, I, what have I attempted to do this morning in the midst of, of trying to take that which God gives us detail about what's going to happen, um, you know, what is the point, what's the takeaway for us? Well, just like this past week, the article on Stephen Hawking caught my attention. 
the smartest man in the world is afraid of aliens and feel we ought to be putting up our defenses about the aliens that might be coming, is God gets us our attention in a variety of different ways, doesn't he? And we're going to see this in the midst of, of God unleashing this. And again, what, what's the heart behind God giving this revelation to John? He, he's warning this planet. He, he's trying to get people prepared, his own people and the people that will be here. And causing his people now to be filled with a sense of urgency. We want to get the message out. Well, let's begin at Revelation 8, beginning in verse 1. When, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, and the seventh seal is, is, is that part of God's description of judgment in which the trumpets flow out of it, the next judgment, uh, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I can't tell you how many commentators who made this comment, but they, they, they say, well, that's, that's a possibility to surmise that when we get to heaven, there aren't going to be any women there uh, because <laughs> there's silence for half. <laughs> well, anyway, um, I, that wasn't me. I'm just, I'm, just, I don't, I'm just the messenger. That was somebody else's message, right? That, that, that there's silence in heaven for half an hour. I don't think that's the point, Okay. But I do think this, is that this is recorded. You think, well, why did he say that? We're talking 30 minutes in this period of time, but he records that there's going to be a period of time where it's just going to be quiet. And the reason I think he puts it in is because, because sometimes we get our attention provoked, not when it's necessarily loud, and we're going to look at that in a moment, but when it's quiet. I was uh, listening to Leah's uh, graduation and baccalaureate speech, and she quoted one of the verses that I have here in the text. It's uh, cease striving, and some translations says, be still and know that I am what? God. Now, I've already, I've already fully messed up the timing of my message this morning, but, but I, I want to I I do something for all of us this morning. I, I, I'm going to give you... 60 seconds in a moment. Uh, and I'm going I'm I'm to really exercise self-control. And for 60 seconds, I'm not going to say anything. But when I, when I allow us all to have 60 seconds of silence, I, I just want you to, just to pray and say, God, what is it you want to say to me? Okay? All right, let's begin.
Okay, 60 seconds. And for some of you, it was really uncomfortable. Some of you are saying, I'm not closing my eyes because I'm not sure what he'll do with me if I close my eyes, you know. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's interesting. All of a sudden, you begin hearing things you, you didn't even know were going on, and maybe the air conditioning or the, the sound of the overhead, and, and then all of a sudden, you start thinking, what, God, what, what do you really want to say to me? And, and God often will use silence in our life to cause us to reflect slow down and to, to see what he really wants to do in our lives. I, I put a couple of passages in your outline this morning. Not only cease striving and know that I am God, but Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and all you, do is, all you can do is wait to say something? And the best thing you can say is often what? Nothing. Be silent before the Lord God, Zephaniah 1.7. For the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Be silent before the Lord God. Well, how do you do that? We, we live in a, in a hectic world. In fact, I'm reading more and more articles now in the business world as well as just uh, in a variety of places where they're, they're just trying to get people to slow down. They think they could, if they, now the, the new speed is slow because if you're slow, you can do more things in a speedy way. And it's like, it's, it's interesting how they, it's now gone that direction. Um, but here, here's how Jesus slowed down. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a secluded place and was praying. Do you have any time in your day? I don't care if it's in the morning. If you're not a morning person, that's all right. Is it in the middle of the day? Is it in the evening where you're all alone with God? There's a place where God wants us just to listen. And, and when I'm alone with God and I, and I slow down, this is, not my, this is not the natural bent of my life. I, this is, this, I have to work at this. But all of a sudden... I, all the things that I've read out of God's Word begin to filter in. It's not like it's all nothingness. And all, I, I, I just rehearse the lessons He's taught me in the past that I still haven't learned now and practicing now in the present. And I, and I begin to, to look at my own priorities and what's really important and how I go off the, down certain paths I shouldn't go down. And God speaks when I listen. And it, 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 the source of the information comes from his word. So if, if somehow you're not getting God's attention or God is not getting your attention, then just be quiet and listen. And what's interesting, I, right before it was silent, it was very loud in heaven. And I, I could rehearse all that from chapters 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. It was loud, but then it became silent. But, but let's move on because from from Silence gets something else. Uh, how does he get our attention? When he surrounds us with people who genuinely need to pray. Yeah, our, our faith and our relationship with God will grow when we're all alone. But if we're only all alone, our faith will not grow. Because we, we are not always really good at self-motivation. Can you, can, we, can you agree to that? Okay, Mo Motivation is, is an ongoing challenge. And 
you motivate yourself, but you can't just motivate yourself. That's why people have coaches. That's why people have trainers. That's why people have teachers. That's why people have, uh, you know, friends. You, you need people around you or you will, you will not be all that you can be. And what's interesting in Revelation chapter 8, uh, we have these words coming next. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, and so that he might hold, add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, I want to try to picture what was happening in heaven. First of all, it was just quiet. And then what was happening in heaven, there was this big prayer meeting. And all these people were before the throne of God talking to God. I often will pray so much better when I'm with other people who are what? Praying. Have you found that to be true? That, that as they pray, you are motivated to prayer. And, and again, I, I'm not looking for flowery prayers. I'm just talking about people who honestly are communicating to God, pouring out their heart to God. Then all of a sudden that provokes in me the desire to pour out my heart to God and to be honest with God and to spend quality time sharing my heart with him and the burdens on my heart and the needs of people around me. And what's interesting in heaven, what it says here is that, that the angels took a, a golden censer, which is basically a fire pan, and, and, and they went to the altar of God, which was in the, the temple of God, and it was before a fire that was ongoing, and they, and they scooped up some coals of fire, and they, and they brought it to the place where the Holy of Holies is, and the closest thing to the Holy of Holies is a censer. And the censer, we don't use censers here, but censers are basically uh, places where certain smells or perfumes or, or pleasant smells are, are provoked by, by flames. And God pictures our prayers in so many different ways because sometimes pictures help us. And it said what the angels did is they, they contributed to the prayers of God's people by pouring out on the on the place that was the censer. And what rose up to God was a sweet smell and aroma of people talking to God. Remember, remember when Jesus uh, would visit the temple when he was here? He got, he got ticked off. And the reason he got ticked off because people had, had taken the place where people were to gather to connect with God and they had they had made it a marketplace rather than, to be, rather than a house of what? House of, well, worship, but even more specifically, a house of, of prayer, right? Don't tell me like you never read that, all right? right? You know, you've, you've turned this place into something other than a house of prayer. Now, the house of prayer doesn't have to be just a, a building like this, but we ought to be around other people and, and pray with them. And if... If we're not that, then we're, we're, we're missing a, a place where God gets our attention because gra God grabs the attention of people and people are talking to him. So how does God get our attention? He gets our attention when we're quiet. He gets our attention when we're praying. And I'm sure when that aroma <laughs> was placed before them, they're praying that they, they smell those smells just like God did. Thirdly, how does God get, get our attention? When he is so loud, we tune out what so easily attracts us. Look at Revelation 8, 5. So we, we go from one extreme to the other. It's quiet in heaven, and, and then, then sounds are deafening 
Verse 5, as, as the judges began to be unleashed, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And so you have the picture here, the, the coals of fire that provoked the incense that, that, that contributed to the prayers of God's people. Then he took those, those coals and in, in a symbolic way, he threw them from heaven onto upon this earth. But then when those, those coals were portraying what was to happen next, he says, and then there followed peals of thunder, and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then adding to that in a moment, verse 6, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So God unleashed his judgment and he set out this alarm system which would be deafening. People could not miss and something is happening. Now, most of us who live in California have experienced an earthquake, to at least to some degree. And, and depending if it was at, at any size in terms of the shake that was happening where you were either in the car or in your home or at school or at work, whatever like that, it, it got your what? It got your attention. You could have done something really important, uh, but if it was shaking hard enough, you, you scrambled for safety, didn't you? You went underneath a, a desk, you, you, you tried to find maybe a doorway, you, you, uh, unless you just froze. Some, some people freeze in the, in the sense of fright. But I mean, it, whatever you're doing, you stopped. Because uh, the, whatever is important now, it, this is much more important. I, my life is in, you know, this could, this could be it. This could be the big one, right? And so, so God does all kinds of means to, to get people's attention. Because so often we think, well, you know... Life is life. I'm living it. I'm in control. What's going on? I can, I can do whatever I want. And he says, oh, yeah, that, the only reason you do whatever you want is because I let you do whatever you want. But there's coming a time. You're going you're gonna to have to realize this is real. I'm real. And whether I quiet it down for, to get your attention, it's the, it's the calm before the storm. Or, or whether in the midst of people that you're saying, they, they, have you ever been around people who go, they seem to know God a lot better than I do? Have you ever been around people like that? I mean, I still have that experience with me as a pastor. There are people I go, man, there's something about their, their relationship with God. It's so intimate. It, it's so real. It it's, has depth to it beyond my depth. And now that can either be depressing or it can be exhorting. And say, man, I, I, I want to keep going deeper in my walk with God. I don't want to be shallow. And, and that, that captures that what was in heaven is God just... Uh, uh, mentions the prayer of God's people. And, and then he said, okay, now, now, now I'm getting back to, to what I announced. I'm, I'm unleashing the judgments of God, and there's going to be a deafening sound on this planet. I, I put in your outline this morning, maybe, maybe we're going to close with this. I won't get to the specific judgments because we'll just touch them. Um. And let me tell you, sound has always been something God's done. Exodus chapter 19, you know, Exodus 19 comes right before Exodus. Well, that you know, comes after 18, Tony. It comes right before what? 20, all right. And, and Exodus 20 is when we get the Ten Commandments. But, but right before you get the Ten Commandments, it's a pretty heavy thing. If you ever read those, I mean, they're, they're nice to put on the wall. But if you have to really do them, you know, that's. And then if you add what Jesus said about all those commandments, uh, they're pretty challenging. Man, he just unleashed sound. Hey, look, I'm, I'm, this is an alarm here. This is, this is stuff. This is good stuff, but it's not. It's good, but it's not easy. And that's all about the Christian life. It's, it's simple. 
so it's not easy. It's awesome, uh, but he doesn't want us to get distracted. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's a passage you can do a week of messages on two verses, but it really said, look it. We got people watching us. And whether that's, and I tend to think it's more related to the, the people in, in Hebrews chapter 11, which speaks about the, the example they set before us, and, and we need to live our life in light of those who have been faithful to God in the past, and we want to be faithful to God in the present, because every generation is responsible for God's message to get to the next generation and the present generation. But, but, but really the picture here is, is uh, you know, the games. You know, in the midst of the games, they're, they're, there's a crowd. And if you're, if you're in your home court, you know, if you're in, a, um, in, in your stadium, you, know, you, you have a, a home game, not an away game, and, and all of a sudden it seems like the, 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 the game's going the opposite way, you know, you're, you're, looking, you're looking for the, the, the crowd to pump you up. And in fact, they have, I was just watching the, the you know, I, I don't normally watch sports, but I, you know, I was watching sports and there was a game and, and it was really close, and, and then toward the end of the game, one of the players is going like this to the crowd. Man, we need your help. Give us, give us, give us some cheering. We, we, we got to win this game. They had to go in overtime, and they won the game. And, and it was volume. It, it motivated the players to give it their all, and they're, they're supported, and they, and they can win because the, the, all the people in the stands believe they can win. And so they don't get distracted about, you know, maybe a ref made a bad call or, or uh, they're, they're behind the, in the scoreboard. They're just, man, we can do it, and they're just... And he says, that's what God wants for us. That in the midst of the crowd of witnesses cheering us on, that we're motivated to not to be caught up in the things that distract us. Well, with my long introduction, we're going to stop right there. Okay. But, but the, the point of the book of Revelation, in the midst of the details, you see the heart of God. That he, that he wants us to realize in the midst of judgment, he's still the Savior. In the midst of people who rebel against him, he, he loves to see people who run to him. In the midst of people who could not care, that there are who care. And he wakes them up with silence, with examples of those who really know God and they want what they got, or with the volume that will be unleashed. He doesn't want anybody to be distracted about what really matters. In a moment, we're going to go to the communion table, which looks back, as we've been trying to look forward, which speaks of why, why we can talk about Jesus as being the Savior, because it's not something we hope he might do. He's done it. In fact, when he was on the cross, he said, it's finished. All that separates man from God's sin has been paid for on the cross. And now what's left for man is to respond. 
sometimes we, we communicate it with the ABCs of the gospel. It comes to the point where you admit your need and, and you turn from your sin. No one ever comes to God unless they admit they need to come to God. And then secondly, it, it's, it's got to be something you're convinced is true. And you, you come to that point, you believe, you believe that Jesus truly is the, is the Son of God. He's God the Son. And that when he died on the cross for your sins, he erased the penalty that you so justly deserve. And he took it upon himself. That's what we mean when he died for your sins. He, he took your place. You should have died for your sins, but he died for your sins. But then there's an action point. You, you need to commit. You need to commit to follow Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior. It, it can be true, but unless you surrender and commit to the one who offers that gift, then God's work on the cross will not be applied to you because you reject it. So when we go to this table, if you've never made that commitment, today's the day where you simply say to God, I, I admit I need to know you. I do believe that Jesus died for me. And I commit my life to you. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that we, we might not be a people that get distracted. And whatever it takes to get our attention, get our attention. And Father, if there be someone here this morning that really d doesn't know you, might today they express the commitment of their heart to you. Jesus, I want to know you. I admit I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me. I give you my life. I commit my life to you. I put my trust in you today. And I receive your gift. And if we've already received that gift, when we take of the communion table, none of us are, are worthy in of ourselves. None of us are perfect. But we just we want to remember the victory that was won on the cross. We want, in a fresh way, turn to you. We want to just say thank you for all that you've done to, to unveil your plan by what Jesus did when he came the first time as we look forward to his coming again. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an opportunity to...